I was losing. People romanticize. You look at TV, somebody's beginnings, they were homeless. People like, oh, you were homeless. Like, no, I was homeless in the winter of Detroit. I think I pulled off two winners, right? So you're talking about almost feeling like your extremities are going to fall off, frostbitten, walking up and down the street for hours in sub-zero weather, snow, ice. That's Eric Thomas, critically acclaimed author, world-renowned speaker, and international business phenom, better known by millions around the world as E.T., the hip-hop preacher. I started to be a critical thinker. I was more analytical. I was solving problems. And I realized that the world was treating me a lot different as a problem solver than they were as a person who created problems. My principals, the police, there were a lot of people when I caused problems that they treated me a certain way and it wasn't necessarily pleasant. But when I became a problem solver, I'm able to work in the community and fix problems. Like people started treating me different. I was like, well, I like this. I'm Michael Mogul, founder and CEO of Crisp, the nation's number one law firm growth company. I've built my business through practice, not theory. Crisp started with just $500 to my name and has grown to over eight figures in revenue over the last few years, earning a spot on the Inc. 500 list of the fastest growing private companies in America. Our approach has been to take everything we've learned about generating massive growth within our own organization and help the country's most ambitious and committed law firm owners do the same for theirs. In each episode of this podcast, I sit down with innovative market leaders from the legal industry and beyond to learn from those who thrive in the face of adversity, challenge the status quo, and define what it means to be a true game changer. Today, we're revisiting one of our most popular episodes from the podcast where I sat down with the one and only Eric Thomas to discuss how he overcame homelessness to connect with others striving for greatness, why talent alone won't take you to the top, and how to lead in a way that empowers everyone around you. I got you. I can take people who are giving you 60% or 70% to 120%. I can take people who are taking no ownership and I can show you how to teach them how to own it. I can tell you people who are settled and mediocre at the job because they're getting a check. And it doesn't matter if they work or not work, they're going to get the same check. Like I can show you how to move the needle with that person. That's coming up on the Game Changing Attorney Podcast. Before we begin today's episode, I want to remind you that we aren't beholden to any sponsors or run any ads on this podcast. This allows us to present all of our episodes raw and unfiltered. I'm not going to push any made-to-order meal services on you or try to save you any money on your car insurance. That being said, I have one small request. If you receive any value from this podcast, please give it a five-star review. Pay the fee so we can keep this podcast free. E.T. is a best-selling author, motivational guru, and international business phenom. His unique brand of pragmatism has made him the go-to problem solver for many of the world's largest brands, including Nike, AT&T, the MLB, the NBA, and the NFL. We began our conversation by learning about his journey and why success wasn't always in the cards for him. It's not in the cards every day. You know what I'm saying? Like, I still get excited, you know? Um, I just did a commercial for the Super Bowl. You know, everybody's like, E.T., you did a commercial for the Super Bowl. I was like, yeah after 30 years of doing this work, you know? So, but no, I, for me, if you ask me, it probably started when I was 16, 17 years old, I uh, ran away from home. Now, for those who follow me, you know, I started running away from home at 13, but I didn't chronicle all of those, you know, little bitty running away from home for the weekends, but I left home for good, uh, 16, almost 17. And um, man, just to be honest with you, living in abandoned buildings, eating out of trash cans, stealing out of the grocery store just so I could have food. I mean, it was rough. You know, I slept in the car when I had it, sleeping at a friend's house. So it's been um, definitely a journey. High school dropout, you know, end up, you know, getting a career job at McDonald's. You know, and I tell people all the time, I worked at McDonald's only because it was one on Finkel in Wyoming on the west side of Detroit. That was a 24-hour McDonald's. So I literally worked from 5 p.m. to 5 a.m. to have a place to stay, if that makes sense. You know, because it's so much easier going to somebody's house in the daytime, right? And just acting like you kind of just chilling than it is to go at night. People kind of know you're spending the night when you go at night. Uh, so I worked at McDonald's, man, five, six days a week. We only took a break to clean up. So, man, I went in at five o'clock. Let me tell you something. I literally tried to be the best burger flipper because if I wasn't, it meant they would get a shift to somebody else. So I had really gotten to a place where I had learned to do everything by myself. I wanted to make sure that nobody could outwork me. 
Nobody could outflip burgers, you know what I'm saying? Make a filet of fish sandwich, dump fries like I could. So McDonald's was the beginning, a regular nine to five, really grinding, really hustling. I think that's probably where I picked up my work ethic. But before there were Super Bowl commercials, MLB, NFL, there was McDonald's. <laughs> so I have to ask, I mean, when you talk about dropping out of high school, living homeless, you know, in the streets for two years, what was that turning point? whether it was one thing or maybe it was multiple, but essentially that got you off the streets. But also, from what I recall, there was someone that you met during that time that inspired you to go back to school as well. I'd say two things if you give me two. I know you said one, but I need two. (laughs) I think the first one was I was losing. You know, people romanticize. You know, when you look at TV, somebody's beginnings, they were homeless. People like, oh, you were homeless. Like, no, I was homeless in the winter of Detroit. Right. I think I pull off two winners, right? So you're talking about almost feeling like your extremities are going to fall off, you know, frostbitten, walking up and down the street for hours in sub-zero weather, snow, ice. That that was number one. I was losing. Going to different venues, smelling. Like, you know, I don't think people really get it. Like, didn't brush my teeth off. You know what I'm saying? Like, it's not as glamorous as it seems. So I was literally homeless, homeless, right? So I was losing, you know, and that was one of the things but the second thing, I was fortunate enough, I started going to church and a young girl there, I started dating her and, you know, she went to college and she was like, look, if I go to college and you don't come with me, like, I'm not going to do the long distance thing. And so it was those two things, the losing and then an the opportunity to kind of like not be homeless. Like I saw college as, woo, a dorm room, you know, you get two to three square meals a day. I remember when I got to college, guys was like, they was, you know, discouraged about, let's say, the cafeteria. I thought it was the best thing in the world. (laughs) And then they didn't serve meat. We went to a university that was, you know, vegan long before it was popular. And they had like the Impossible Burger and all of that. Those were the two things. Didi, and again, I've been blessed. She was my girlfriend, of course. We got married after our freshman year. Been married over 30 years now. So those were the two things for me that was like, yo, I got to get off the streets. And man, I would hate to lose Didi. I had never been to college, but I kind of know you know, what's on college campuses. So I was like, I don't think she's going to graduate and come back to a guy that's homeless. You know, that's a high school dropout. And those were kind of things that sparked me to leave my current situation in hopes of, I didn't know what was next, which was a pretty phenomenal next. So one of the things I want to ask, I, I was going to get this, to this later, but I, I think this is so important to to really understand. And I think it's Didi's role in your life, especially early on, because the ET today, you know, it was very different back when you you know moved to Huntsville and, and so on. And and I imagine that like having her through that journey, like what would life have been like without her? You know, I, I'm going to be honest with you. And I'm so glad you asked because that's not a question people ask a lot. Like maybe, I don't know, in the last 10, 15 years I've been interviewing, probably less than three or four times I've been asked that question. And it's just refreshing, man, to be honest with you, to go back, you know, and kind of think about it. But you got to remember, I was, I had a strained relationship from my mom. You know, I wasn't going home. So some of that social capital you get from home, you know, that affirmation, that love, and that tender care, I wasn't getting that. So when people think homeless, they only think of abandoned buildings, you know, malnutrition, like you're not bathing. But I, I think a bigger piece to homeless is the sense of loneliness. You not being attached to daily, you know, the people you love and care for. I mean, you think about people who go to the military, like that's stable, or people who go to college, like that's stable. And they still have this absence thing, just not seeing your mom every day, not how you doing, baby, you know, getting a hug or a kiss. And I think that's the thing that probably bothered me the most is that social capital. I didn't have it. You know, those words of affirmation that, how you doing? And so Didi became that, like really bared the weight for most of it because I wasn't with my sisters. You know, I wasn't going to my cousins. I wasn't at, you know, just a strained relationship. As odd as it may seem, it really separated me from my entire family, to be honest with you, because I didn't want to be around my mom. Of course, I didn't want to be around the people that my mom would be around. So Didi became that. And that's probably obvious that she became that love and support But I think the thing that Didi has always been is that accountability. And you and I both know when you talk about success, like I don't think that you can have a measure of success without having somebody, one, who recognize your potential. But let's be honest, a lot of people recognize people's potential. But pulling that out, like that's a different beast. That's Phil Jackson to Michael Jordan. 
Mike, I see your greatness, but you know, it's so much more you could do. Like you an all-star, I'm gonna make you a superstar. Same thing with Kobe. Kobe, you an all-star, but I'm gonna make you a superstar, right? And Didi made me a superstar. I'd already had, you know, these abilities inside of me. It wasn't like dating Didi put them in me. They had already been there. But Didi had a way of saying, yo, you have potential, but I'm not satisfied with your potential. I want you to get it out. I want you to actualize it. So I think those are the two things, the love and support that she's always given me. And let me say this. There is another one. I don't even think I recognize this a lot. But Didi has always been the stabilizer, right? Didi's not a bit risk taker, but Didi never dropped out of school. Didi always had 800 credit score. Didi worked, had a bank account. You know, so while I was doing all this dreaming and what I would hope to be, Didi was always stable. And I think I overlooked that at times because, again, let's think about it. When you think about a, a massive, like, Navy ship, you don't think about the anchor, right? But between you and I, let's be real. Without that anchor, who knows what could happen to the ship? So Didi's also been that stabilizer, that anchor that I could always count on. Again, credit score. Didi's going to finish whatever she starts. Didi's going to be consistent. She's predictable. So she's also been that anchor for me as well. It's so interesting you, you mentioned that because with a lot of really successful entrepreneurs and leaders that I speak with, there's that, that right-hand person that they have in their life, whether it's a spouse, whether it's a partner, whoever it is. And there's always people listening and thinking, how do I find me a Didi? And I think that's probably the wrong question. It's more of like, how do you attract someone like that to your life? So I, I'm just wondering, how did you attract someone like that to your life? You know, here's the deal. While there are people that, man, we need in our lives, we do have to understand this as well. They have a need too. And their need might not be your need, right? But I, I'm going to be honest. Now, Didi may not, you know, she may or may not say this on camera, right? But I, I think I added a little risk, you know, to her life. We made it a little interesting. <laughs> you know what I'm She's dating a high school dropout with potential. You know, she's dating this guy. And again, I, I think people who are stabilizers have a need, you know, to have a project. They're not trying to work on themselves. So I, so I, I was Diddy's project. You know, I gave her a little something to focus on, something to wake up to every day, something to go after, something to get, something to use all her skills on. So I think that's number one. I think that's how we attract it. I think sometimes we think we have to be like the people that we want to attract. And that's not the truth. You know, I think sometimes opposites can attract and opposites do add, you know, a little interest, a little spice. You know, I was always the guy that was, on edge, I did things differently. Like, Diddy followed all the rules. So I think she kind of liked, you know, that, hey, look at this guy that's not following the rules. It's kind of, you know, it's kind of, to some extent, it's fun. Like, now, he's not going to stop me from finishing school. And he's not going to stop me from being successful. But she'll say today, you know, hey, we would have a beautiful home and a beautiful family and just kind of do the routine thing. Eric has put color to this picture. So we got a house on the West Coast. We got a house on the East Coast. We travel the world. She's like, I would never done that. If it wasn't for Eric, I'd just go to work, do what I'm supposed to do, come home, go to church. You know, so I think in a weird way, I probably benefit more than she benefits. But in a weird way, I gave a person who's looking to do a project, I gave him a, a real good project to do. <laughs> So I want to go back to college. You know, you go from high school dropout, you graduate your undergraduate degree, but you keep going, right? You, you went to Michigan State, you got your master's and then ultimately a PhD. Why, why did you keep going? You know, I'll be honest with you. Once I started, I was like, yo, this ain't bad. While nobody in my family ever got a PhD and maybe my grandma had 14 kids. So just imagine, you know, how many cousins I have, right? So out of all my cousins, it may be two of us and it doesn't make us better people, but two of us probably went you know, for an advanced degree, maybe one or two of us got a PhD. Now, I didn't have the tools or the skills when I finally got there. That's another story. But of course, you know, you can get that. But seeing other men and women who look like me, you know, the president of the university look like me. I eventually moved, you know, in the same neighborhood when I was in school. You know, Brian McKnight was a student. So Brian McKnight went on to, I mean, kill a game. Then we had take six. They went on to win Grammys. And so it, it was like, whoa, that I had other friends who graduated, and, you know, became CEOs or lawyers. And I was like, yo, this side of the fence, even though I didn't grow up on this side of the fence, it's not a bad side of the fence. And so I'm like, well, E, you over here, you in the game, even though you never saw yourself in the game, you in the game, you might as well play to win now. I started doing things that that environment affirmed, things that were valuable and valued in that community. I started running a GD program. 
you know, I started reading books. I start, you know, speaking, of course, and then going to conferences because I was speaking. I would go early, stay late. And I was like, you know what? This world isn't bad. Now, you do have to work a little harder in this world than I had to when I was homeless and high school dropout. But let's be honest, I wasn't doing a whole lot in that world and I wasn't getting rewarded. In this world, I had to work a little harder, but man, the rewards were, you know, so worth it. So for me, I think that's what it was. And so, of course, you get, imagine, it took me 12 years to get a 40 degree. And I said to myself, like, E, why stop? You just learn how to read. You just learn how to write. Like, you just learn how to be a critical thinker. And that's the biggest part, right? Like, I'm not even really into degrees, but the critical thinking part, it was like when I was younger, I would have problems and create more problems from that problem. Whereas an adult now, now I'm not saying I mastered it, but I got to a point where I could start figuring out you got a challenge, like critically think, like how can you get yourself out of this, right? And so I started to be a critical thinker. I was more analytical, like I was solving problems. And I realized that the world was treating me a lot different as a problem solver than they were as a person who created problems. Like my principals, the police, like there were a lot of people when I caused problems that they treated me a certain way and it, it wasn't necessarily pleasant. But when I became a problem solver, like I'm able to work in the community and fix problems, like people start treating me different. I, I got invited to different stuff. The check was definitely different. The circle of influence started to change a little bit. And I was like, well, I like this. So I said to myself, why stop at the four-year degree? It took you 12 years. Like you got it now. So now I'm being recruited by Michigan State and other universities. But of course, I chose Michigan State because I'm from Detroit. My mom had a, a child that went to Michigan. You know, she was the smart one. Now I'm coming to Michigan State. Like my mom can brag and say, my baby's with the Michigan and Michigan State. So I'm saying, yo, I, I finally learned how to read. Let's go. So I got the master's, got the master's in two years. And I was like, yo, you were literally on a college campus. You work for Michigan State University. They pay for you to get a PhD. Like, why wouldn't you go get it? So for me, man, it just, Success started to taste good. And I started to develop an insatiable desire to succeed and, and explore and discover. And I was like Iron Man, you know, a Superman. I'm like, what can I do? I didn't even know I had these superpowers. And now I'm starting to really start using them and seeing the manifestation of these superpowers. And so now I'm tapping in and saying, man, I never even knew I was this talented or gifted. I love this life. Let me not have the destination syndrome. Right. I don't want to have this destination syndrome where it's like you get this and then you just stop. because I saw it. I saw people who went to college when I was a, a GED recipient who finished in four years, took me 12. I saw people who finished in four years, finished on time, but then they settled on that mountain. They settled on that island. You know, I saw people who were gifted and talented, but once they finished school, it was like, oh, I did that. It's over. And I realized, oh, no, that's not the name of the game. This, my friend, is a, is a journey. It's about discovering. It's more fun to discover and explore than it is to settle. That's what happened. I started to taste a little success, and I just wanted more and more and more. And looking back at this, I'm sure it's always easy to connect the dots, you know, looking back in hindsight. But when you were going this route, you could have helped anyone. You could have gone you know, through many different career paths, but you were focused on helping underprivileged youth before the CEOs and before the athletes and so on. Why was that so important to you? Can I say this to you, though? Believe it or not, a lot of the NFL players, NBA players that I work with, a lot of the corporate, they're underserved youth that just happen to be talented. But in terms of development, which we both know is something totally different. And I think where people get confused, people get confused with talent and development. Like talent, you're just born with that. Development, you gotta assemble that. <laughs> you gotta assemble that one. That, that come in the box with a whole bunch of pieces and only a couple tools, right? So for me, man, I remember, you know, those abandoned buildings. You know, I remember those sleepless nights. I remember, being in an abandoned building on the west side of Detroit, Orange Line. And I remember using a kerosene heater to stay warm. And I remember smelling like kerosene. I remember like not thinking that I was worth much or of much value. And I remember Pastor Willis at the time when I started going to that church, you know, I just remember him saying to me like, wow, you're so gifted. I'm like, what? <laughs> gifted? Like where? You know, say like, I'm missing something, you know, here. And he would just keep saying it like, man, I really want to invest in you. Like, I really want to help you to get off the streets. Look, if you're ever interested in getting your GED, you know, I know a place that you can go. We don't mind paying for it. And if you ever get your GED, you know, I, 
I'd be interested in sending you to my alma mater, which is Oakwood, which where Didi went. And I was like, man, wow. Okay, well, and I remember him giving me hope. I remember him giving me this hope in this hopeless time. And he did it. He did exactly what he said he was going to do. I got to GED. He sent me to Oakwood. And I remember when I left, he said to me, like, you're going to do great things. You're going to do great things. I have one request of you. I'm like, one, whatever you like, you're the reason why I got off the street. Like, whatever you want me to do. He said, I just want you to pay it forward. I want you to do for others what I'm doing for you today. And rest in peace, Pastor Willis. He probably died of stomach cancer. I think maybe two years ago, maybe three at the most to this day. Let me say this. And I'm sorry to, to jump off. But um, at the funeral, I met his goddaughter, who's the same age as my my daughter. I don't know what happened, but she, like me, didn't make some of the best choices. And she wasn't in college. And she came to me and said, you know, my grandfather, you know, he spoke highly of you. And. I'm going to ask a favor of you. I said, whatever, whatever you want. She says, for grandpa, I want to go back to college and I want to get my degree at Oakwood. And I have been able to give her a scholarship and pay for room, board, everything. I'm saying, man, when you talk about one of the greatest feelings in the world, you know, to pay back the man, of course, by helping people, but now to be able to directly help his descendant, unbelievable. So, so that's been the fuel to my fire is every time I help somebody, I feel like, I'm making Pastor Willis proud, you know, so that's the genesis of my work and why. And again, I'm just helping the Eric Thomases of the world. And you'd be shocked. The Eric Thomases are in the NBA. The Eric Thomases are in the NFL, MLB. The Eric Thomases are in corporate America. And of course, when you get to a level of excellence, I mean, it doesn't have a gender or a ethnic background to it. So, of course, I help everybody. But to your point, the genesis, I help young people. African-American males. And it was strictly males because that's what I was. And girls, you say, I'll tell you, why you always help the boys? Why you never help the girl? I was like, yo, I'm not, I don't know your issues. Like, you know, but of course they beat me down and made me submit. So I help everybody now. But um, to answer your, your question, Pastor Willis was the reason for the season. E.T., you're, you're definitely a quotatious person in the sense that many of the things that you say later go on to become these quotes and they'll be on social media or they're on shirts. And, and I remember there's one distinctly you mentioned in a video and then the video just I mean, it's got millions and millions of views at this point. You said that when you want to succeed as bad as you want to breathe, then you'll be successful. And I'm just curious, like where that came from and, and really what you mean by that. Now, I got to tell you this. I have a few people in my life who are educated, right? And they always say, E, it says badly. I say, you know, that don't sound right. Come on. That's like in a college classroom somewhere. Like less than 80% of the world's population have degrees. All right, get off of that, right? But it came from, I read Dennis Kimbrough's rendition of Napoleon Hill's uh, Think and Grow Rich. Dennis Kimbrough did an offspin of it and used the same structure, but primarily he uh, replaced it with African-American men and women, right? I'm going to be honest with you. I know it's in that book, but I don't ever remember reading it. <laughs> I just knew that day when I spoke, I was so angry and I'm, and I'm talking righteous indignation. I was so angry that a group of kids who had absolutely no academic reason for being at uh, Michigan State University, but again, because of the work of Martin Luther King, and the um, civil rights bill, they came up with a division called TRIO. And it gave, you know, students from urban communities an opportunity, you know, to go to major universities. And so it was like, guys, you don't have another chance. Like you were at Michigan State. You get a degree from here. You're talking about Steve Smith. You know, you're talking about Dan Gilbert, Magic Johnson. The list goes on and on of Izzo, people who you will be a part of a, a family, like an alumni. And so for me, I was so angry because this was midterms and a lot of the students that were coming to my program were failing. This is a voluntary program I did, but they were failing. And I was saying, if you get sent back home to Michigan, like you don't stand a chance. At that time, we were dealing with the crisis of the 3M, Ford, Jim and Chrysler, the government having to buy them out. Like what we're seeing with the pandemic now, Michigan looked like that 2008, 2009. Uh, we went from 2 million people to less than 600,000. The schools were getting shut down. People were committing suicide. Like it was unbelievable. Like it was a economic crisis in Michigan. Uh, and so I'm saying to these kids, like you got a chance to come to Michigan State, be an engineer, a doctor, a lawyer. And so I was literally going off 
Like when you watch the video, if you go back, like that wasn't, I wasn't in a good mood. And so it came from a place where guys, this is America. You can go to some third world country and get up at three and go to bed at nine. You still can't make the kind of money you can make here. There are opportunities that don't exist in other places like they exist in America. And you're giving one of the greatest opportunities in the world. That's to come to a major university. When you talk about resources, physical resources, human resources, right? Financial, like it's unbelievable. This is Michigan State. It's over 50,000 students. And then you go, you're going back to the west side of Detroit, the east side of Detroit. Like, have you lost your mind? And so I was thinking to myself, okay, Eric, they're not getting it. That's not their fault. They might be first generation. Like, they're not getting it. Like, you got to find a way. <laughs> like, you have to find a way to not only be informative, but you're going to have to find a way to be captivating. You have to tell a story. You have to do something. You got to pull out everything, right? And if you go back to that story, you'll notice that I've probably never done a story like that before. Like all of those elements that I use, I've probably never done that before, right? And so, man, I went in. I went in. Like, yo, guys, you got to want this. Like, you just can't go to class. You got to want this as bad as you want to breathe. And what's so funny about it is that the young man who videoed it had actually used me as a part of his thesis. So he flew to California with me. I did this big program in Crenshaw, you know, that dealt with the Crenshaw schools and all of the things that were transpiring, you know, in LA at that time with our African-American black and brown babies. And that was it. But he came back, he was like, yo, E, I was like, what's up? He was like, yo, I got a lot of good stuff on you, but I don't really have you speaking. Can I come to your program and just record? I was like, absolutely. That was the first time I'd ever had a mic on. I'd never wore a mic before, right? First time I had a professional camera like that in front of me. I used the VHS. All, you know. So he took it. You know what's so crazy? And I don't tell the story a lot, but he never actually used that piece in his thesis. Unbelievable. When you talk about timing and season, he never used it. So I remember a friend saying to him, yo, you, you remember that clip you took at the, he's like, yeah, he's like, yo, you still have that somewhere? He's like, yeah, let me look. I think I got it. So he had on a little SD card. He's like, look, here's the SD card. And so we wanted to show other students. We just thought like, yo, this message, like we got to get this to every student that comes in the program. Like this has to be the main video that we show. But they were like, well, how? Like we only got 30 kids coming to the program. Like how, how will we do it? And it was like, oh, you know what? This new thing just came out, YouTube. And you can store stuff on YouTube. We was like, that's it. Like, we can't use cassette tapes. Like, we can't use the little the DVDs mess up. So we put it up on YouTube. And it was on YouTube. And we showed it for like, you know, a year or two to these kids, 30 kids, 40 kids here, there. Two or three years it was up. And before we know it, there's a DJ out of New York who got a hold of it and put it up. And it started getting like hundreds of thousands. And then this kid, Giovanni, used it to get in the NFL. He never got in the NFL and somebody ripped it from his page, stole it and put it up. And next thing we know, it's got 47 million hits. Unbelievable. But it was all about me going off on that group of students and talking to them like Pastor Willis had talked to me and trying to arrest their attention and say, man, this is it. And believe it or not, that message was the catalyst to turn a lot of kids around and bring me a sense of, notoriety on campus. And it took my program from like 30 kids to maybe we start bringing anywhere from 265 to 300 kids a week. And we would do a program every Tuesday and we would use the students to act, to do poetry, whatever I would speak. We had a band, you know, so it was just a program meant to help first generation students transition from, you know, maybe a, a city like Chicago, Detroit, Flint, Saginaw to a, a predominantly white institution for a lot of these kids. Like it was their first time in a spot where it was 50,000, 3,000 in the classroom. They might've been the minority for the first time in their life because you know, they went through K through 12 in their community. So phenomenal speech that day came from the heart. I've never been able to uh, replicate that particular message. I guess I've never been mad at a group of people like that since. While ET is the epitome of hustle, drive, determination, and success, he acknowledges that there's a disconnect for many between desire and effort. I asked him to elaborate on how he recommends people bridge the gap between the two. We go back to it. Fundamentals. I never said when you want to eat as bad as you want. <laughs> I never said that because you can go 30 days without eating. Right. Gandhi fast. So many people fast for, you know, 20, 30 days. I never said when you want to succeed as bad as you want to drink water. 
I think you could probably survive maybe three or four days without water. I said as bad as you want to breathe. You can't go five minutes. Like, that's brain damage. Like, you can't go five minutes without breathing. So what I was trying to get to both groups is that the challenge is not potential. The challenge is not even talent. The challenge is desire. They said effort is the indicator of interest, right? Effort is the indicator of interest. And so I think the biggest challenge is that people have potential. They actually have some skill set. I just think most people don't want it. Like they don't put forth the effort. So it's like if your effort match your dreams, like everybody's had dreams to go. If your effort match, so I go to NFL players and say, like I got a client right now. I told the client the other day, I said, let's be honest. You an all-star, but you're not a superstar. It's a difference. You're an all-star. You're only an all-star because of your, your height. Like you were born that way. You were given that. That's a God-given gift. But your effort does not match. It doesn't match your talent. Your talent is 120. Your effort is about 70. And I'm telling you, I travel to these corporations, these athletes, just normal people. And it's like, man, you're only giving 70%. What would life look like if you gave 120%? Like, what would it look like if you actually worked for every check you got? You know, like, I know you want to check, but what if it looked like if you had to really work for every check? And so for me, it doesn't matter if you're poor. It doesn't matter if you're middle class. It doesn't matter if you're rich. I truly believe that the difference between humans is how bad they want it. And there's a group that wants it as bad as they want to eat. They do. You get hungry, you want to eat. There are a lot, you know, people don't like the fat. There's a group that drink, you get thirsty. But there's a group that they want it so bad, it's like breathing. Like they eat it, they drink it, they sleep it. And I don't think success is as much about talent as we like to believe it is. Or I wouldn't be where I am today. I wouldn't be considered one of the number one motivational speakers in the world. I don't believe I'm better than the late, great Zig Ziglar, who was my favorite. I don't believe that I'm more skilled than a Tony Robbins or a Les Brown, right? I don't believe I'm more skilled than most of the people out here that's doing this work. But I don't know how many, I don't know how many people had a content, the volume of content that I have. I don't know how many people getting up at three o'clock in the morning and doing a video noon, doing a video at night when you go home. I'm giving you something so your family could be excited when you get home. Like, I don't know how many people work. Like I say all the time, your mama might have this or your dad might be rich or you might have a net work or a net worth, but you will not outwork me. That's effort. That's heart. That's desire. Man, I just think America, I think we slipping a little bit in terms of, you know, when I was coming up as a kid in the 70s, America was like, you know, you it, no other country was even close to us. You know what I'm saying? We like a superhero. But I believe that we're not as competitive because it seems like the effort that my grandfather had to just grind and work, like that effort doesn't seem like it's there anymore. It seems like more people want and wish, but they don't have that work ethic that we used to have. So I just believe, man, desire, desire and effort and putting forth work. I think that's what a lot of people are missing. And I don't care where you were born or where you come from. To me, that is the difference between surviving and legacy. So there are people, you know, what, 50 or 60 percent of the wealth that we have in this country has been passed down. But how many people can keep that? How many people can sustain that from generation to generation? And if you can, it means you work just as hard as your grandfather or great grandfather or great great grandpa. So, man, effort to me is a missing element when we talk about success. As you were saying that, I'm thinking there's someone listening right now that's nodding their head and they're like, yes. Yes, I agree 100%. And there's a lot of leaders that are, that are listening right now, leaders of organizations. How do you recommend they approach motivating their team? Because they probably feel the same way and not just in getting the, you know, their team members to buy into the mission of the organization, but also just for the standpoint of getting people to put in that level of effort and commitment towards something, anything. So here's what I think we do wrong as leaders. We assume that everybody that's following us speaks the same language we speak. So, so I'll give you an example. I'll never forget, there was a, a company that, you know, wanted to hire me. And they just, man, they bragged about what I would be exposed to in terms of information. You know, they bragged about how much money I would be able to make millions of dollars. But they said one thing that broke the deal for me. They said that I wouldn't be able to continue to do the work that I was doing via social media. Like I wouldn't be able to give away free content, right? That was a game changer. Like, that's a game changer. You're telling me I'm actually trying to give more people access into this great American dream. You know, when you hear certain people talk about the country in a bad way, 
I get it. You haven't experienced it. Like you, you haven't been to uh, Utah like I've been to Utah. You feel you haven't had a chance to be go to the mountains in, in Utah. You haven't had that opportunity. You haven't been to the beach in San Diego and L.A. You haven't been to South Florida and drove up the Keys. You haven't been able to swim in the Pacific or the Atlantic Ocean. Like, I get it. You haven't been able to go to the dealership and buy the car of your dream, the house of your dream. Like, I get it, right? So I want to help that group to experience the American dream, right? So most of the people I talk about, now there was one company that my advisors was like, yo, I don't think this is a good deal. Like, I don't know if you want to do venture capital, a joint venture with this individual. You know, not that they're bad people, but they just, you know, they, they on edge in terms of how they make their money. You're not necessarily like, your integrity is a big part of what you do, right? So I was like, okay, but I promise you, he almost got me. Because he told me how much money I could make, but then he showed me how many millions he would be willing to give me as scholarships to help my babies at Michigan State go to college. And that almost got me. <laughs> it's like, it's like, you can't do it. I was like, what you mean we can't do it? I got students right now that are eight, 4.0 students, but their parents got laid off from Ford or fired from GM or Chrysler and they can't finish school. Like this money would, he spoke my language. And I think so many natural born leaders are ambitious and driven and especially driven to get results and are driven economically, that they assume that the 88% of the world that are followers, they assume that they're driven by the same thing. So they speak that language. And if you're speaking English to somebody who's Spanish speaking, you speak English to somebody who speaks French, you speak English to somebody who speaks Igbo, they're not gonna understand what you're saying. And I think one of the things that leaders do wrong is they speak the wrong language. And if they would learn to speak the right language and learn to use the followers' dreams, goals, ambitions against them, I'd say to their advantage, if they could learn to use a thing that motivates them and drives them to their advantage. I can't tell you how much free work that I do. And people say, well, why would you? I literally started doing corporate work because it paid so much that it gave me an opportunity to actually make that type of money, but spend most of my days in a school, on Zoom, talking to a group of kids. So I think we make a lot of assumptions as leaders and we assume that what drives me, what moves me, is what moves everybody, and that's not the case. And then we would just spend some time, I mean, there's research out there, tools out there that you could use to ascertain what motivates and drives and moves people. I think if you would motivate them from their preference, I think we'll do a much better job and learn a different language. I think we'll, learn, uh, we'll do a much better job. And I'll just be honest with you, it's not simple, right? But it's rewarding. Let's talk about even this, the people listening, even the leaders before they go on and try to influence anybody else. It seems that many people end up sabotaging themselves. Like, how do they, you know, essentially master themselves first? Yeah, I think you master yourself first by not believing that you know it all. Like, I think there's a phobia of asking for help. There's this phobia of not, especially when you're a leader and you're good at what you do. You know, it's almost you feel inferior to not know it all. You feel this sense of loss, you know, or defeat. Like every time you're in a room, the ego. And again, let's not minimize. There's a thin line between confidence and cocky. It's, it's a thin line, right? But what we have to understand is cocky takes us to the place of I know it all. I don't need anything. Confidence takes us into like I've done the work. I put in the time, but I still don't know everything. And I'm still not all knowing and I still can't, you know, be everywhere at one time. And so I have to humble myself. And yes, in my area, I'm a master. I never forget. Most humbling thing ever happened to me was when I got my master's at Michigan State. You're talking about a stadium that fits 17,000 people and everybody walks in. You've got the undergrad that walks in, the master's that walk in, the PhD that walks in, and you got the college of engineering, the college of, I was sitting there like, whoa, it's a, if I was to get a degree in every college, I got a long way to go. And then even in my own college, there's K through 12, there is adult learning, there are specialties. And I sat in that room and one of the biggest moments of my life and felt the dumbest that I'd ever been. As I looked in the room and was like, whoa, all of these programs, I probably know minuscule compared to everybody in this room. And so I think what leaders do is leaders think that they have to always be up front. They have to always be in charge. They have to always be right. And that creates blind spots. And we know that there are more accidents in the United States of America from blind spots 
right, than anything else. Like, you didn't even see that car. And listen to me, as beautiful as technology is, we still have blind spots on cars. I'm like, yo, we've been doing cars since Ford in the team model. Like, we can't get rid of the blind spots. And so as leaders, we don't want to acknowledge that we have blind spots. We don't want to acknowledge that we don't know everything. And I don't think it's what we know that's hindering us. I think it's what we don't know and what we're not confident enough to say we don't know that's really stopping us. So to me, that would be the first line of uh, work. We call it the inability to self-assess. And it's so funny, I'll say to CJ, yo, see, what's our model for 2018? Uh, the inability to self-assess. All right, good. 2019, what is it? He said, I still think we're at the inability to self-assess. I said, 2021, E, people don't want to self-assess. And I think that's what leaders need to do first. And again, I know we say nobody cares how much you know until they know how much you care. But I want to take it a step further. Nobody knows how much you care until they know you're vulnerable. Like nobody loves a know-it-all. Nobody wants to be with a know-it-all. But when people know you know what you know, but you're vulnerable enough to say that you don't know everything, guess what? They want to be on a team because now they feel like they're valued. But when they feel like they're on a team where you're putting up 80 points and they never get the rock, nobody wants to be on a team where they can't contribute. And so I would just say to leaders, we have to be careful. Yes, we are experts. And yes, they're looking to us as the authority. But it doesn't mean that they're looking for somebody that knows everything. Over the past several years, ET has become one of the most prolific content creators on social media, putting out content on a daily basis. I asked him to speak to how he's maintained this level of consistency and the impact it's made for his personal brand. Are you clear on your role? Are you clear on specifically what your team needs from you. When I look at Tom Brady, I was like, oh, okay. Tom Brady left the Patriots, went to Tampa Bay. It's apparent that he serves as a reminder of what's possible. When you look at his numbers, he's really not, numbers-wise, the best that ever did it. But there's something that he does for the environment that makes the environment believe that being a champion is possible. I don't know how you got Tampa Bay to believe that, okay? But he got Tampa Bay, and it wasn't like Tampa Bay won Super Bowl in the last three, four years. Like, it's been a minute, right? I think they did it twice, right, since 1955, 56. So Tom Brady has this thing about him that he makes people believe that it's possible if they would just put forth the effort. I knew that it was my role to be the voice. Like, off record, I call myself, an energy consultant, right? I say I'm an energy consultant, right? And I know my job is for those, you know, who look to me for leadership, they wake up every morning to, I'm their cup of coffee. I'm their five hour energy boost. They like, wake up, ooh, ET made me want to run through a wall. Once I realized that that was my role, I also realized it was my responsibility. So I wasn't in the business of creating content. I was in the business of providing a need, that was it. Like Monday through Friday, they're going to need you. And then I was like, oh, okay, well, you probably need to start doing something on the weekend because they probably going to need a little energy for their families too, like for their wife or their husband or their children. So we started putting out a little something on the weekends as well. So that was number one. Like I didn't go into it with the content creation. I didn't even know that was a word when I first started on YouTube, right? I didn't even know if that was a concept. Just like I'm just figuring out social distancing is a concept. I think by meeting so many people's needs, you got to think about it. Just, just take, a, take a moment to think. You say, E.T., you're in the NFL, the NBA, Major League Baseball. You're in corporate. It's simple. These kids started following me when they were in middle school. And then they went to high school as a basketball, football, Major League. Then they went to college and told Nick Saban, look, Nick, you need to bring E.T. into Alabama. Cam, you, hey, you need to bring E.T. to Auburn. It's not rocket science. I met the needs of people when they were middle school, high school. I have kids who were in my program in Michigan State are now mid-level managers or either CEOs of startup companies. And guess who they call to do their consulting work? They call the dude that met their need. So I believe that when you meet enough people's needs, you become valuable to the marketplace. And so all my content met a need initially. And then, of course, I became valuable to. So now I'm working with Alabama, help Alabama win championships. I'm helping Auburn become. So, of course, corporate is calling me now because they're like, yo, E, how do we move people in the way you move people? I'm like, hey, for a small fee. 
<laughs> you know what I'm saying? For a small fee, I'll show you how to do it. It can be done. I got you. I can take people who are giving you 60% or 70% to 120%. I can take people who are taking no ownership, and I can show you how to teach them how to own it, right? I can tell you people who are settled and just mediocre at the job because they're getting a check, and it doesn't matter if they work or not work, they're going to get the same check. Like, I can show you how to move the needle with that person. But how did I learn how to do it? By putting up this content every day and seeing people respond, hey, E, I need more. E, I don't know. Going to schools, going to corporate, I start, you know, just practicing. So I would say that by me meeting a need, I, start, I brought value to the marketplace. You know, once you bring value to the marketplace in this society, it, it, it becomes easy at that point. So meet a need and then you become valuable. Not, not value and then you meet a need. It's actually the opposite way. So there's something you said there that I want to touch on because it was so interesting to me in the sense that you mentioned that Nick Saban brought you in. And I've seen Nick Saban speak, great leader. Many organizations want to bring in Nick Saban to speak. But I want to also highlight the importance of someone like Nick Saban or another business leader that, let's say, is a great leader and does a good job motivating their team, but just the importance of their people hearing a different voice. Well, Nick Saban understands. And he'll tell you, while I'm phenomenal at a lot of stuff that I do, I'm a white male who didn't grow up in the African-American community. I don't know what percentage of his players are African-American males, you know, but he's, I'm an African-American male who didn't not grow up like that without my father and this certain community. Like, yo, he is a forthright expert in that area. Like, not only is he in the community, like, that's what he's gone through. He's experienced that. So while I can tell him the same message, there are certain things I will say to them that are not going to. And let me tell you something about Nick Saban that meant super mad respect for. Nick's taking notes while I'm like, yo, Nick Saban has actually quoted me after an event. Like Nick's big thing was when I come, he's like, yo, E, you got to talk about that. Everybody want to be a beast until it's time to do what real beasts do. Like, E, you got you to talk about that. Like, you got to. So Nick Saban is a beast, but he knows he don't win every championship game. He doesn't come out with a ring every year. So he knows that since that's his goal to win and he doesn't win every year, that he needs multiple people from different walks of life and personalities to be able to push the needle with these guys. He understands that. And that's what I meant about genius leadership. He knows that he's the best in the game, but he still has a need. And so I think that's why a person like that, after I leave, I'm studying him <laughs> you know, because he winning championships and I'm trying to learn from him. So I was so fortunate. The last time I spoke for the team, he actually allowed me to come up and I never thought to ask before, but he let me come up a day or two in advance. And I sat through the meetings and went through the playbooks and got an opportunity to speak to different coaches. Right. Because a lot of times we just want to speak to Nick Saban. Hey, yeah, I got an opportunity to go in. I think that's genius. Like every time I comes, I think his practice is to let people come in his office and sit down and have a little chat with him. Unbelievable. But I, I took advantage of the strength and conditioning coach. I took advantage of the recruiting coach. Like I took advantage of sitting down with others because this is a winning program. So I didn't go in there, you know, like I don't have nothing to learn. I went in saying, you know, there's something that I can contribute and I am blessed to speak to every, every class I get to speak to. So if you're there for four years, I'll get a chance to speak to your class, right? I just thought it was genius that he let me in and let me into his world because I took way more out of being in that environment that I'm sure um, that I added to that environment. And being so consistent for so long, I, I've got to ask you, are there any particular habits that you practice that help to keep you on track or engaged and basically operating at peak state? Because to be consistent for so many years, just is there anything that you're doing either daily or weekly that have helped you? Yeah, I'm coachable. I don't make assumptions. I don't bring pre-cooked food to an event. Like, I don't, I don't put the Big Mac under the, the red laser boy and wait for you to order it. Like, I literally have a conversation with the CEO, and I'm like, yo, what do you need? I want to be like Ruth Chris. You know what I'm saying? I want to bring your filet out just how you want it and nice and hot. Whatever your side dishes are, I want to bring them out. I want them sizzling on the plate. You know, so that's the first thing. I'm coachable. You know, I don't go in as I'm the best in the business. I'm not the best in the business. I may be the best in my world. I may to be best at what I do, but I need to learn from you. So that's number one, I'm coachable. Number two, I'm patient, you know? Greatness can't be rushed. I want to get this right. And getting it right is about timing. It's all about timing. So I'm, I'm patient. You know, I don't want to rush the process. I want to get in my spot as it relates. Forever learning. 
never thinking that I read the last book or listened to the last podcast or watched the last movie, you know, or gone to the last game and watched some of my players play. All my players I coach, I watch their games. I don't look at the box score and say, hey, you scored so-and-so, you need to work on this. I actually watch the entire game and we talk about each sequence, you know. And then again, the last one is I'm passionate. I love what I do. I live in a country where you get rewarded for your work. You know, so I'm passionate about what I do. I don't do it because I'm getting paid. I do it because I love it. And if I don't love it, I don't do it. And I don't compromise. I don't work for companies that I don't particularly care for. It's like, you know, people tell you all the time, how do you start investing, you know, with the S&P 500? It's like investing companies that you already, you know, say if you wear Nike, invest in Nike. You go to Chipotle, invest in Chipotle. I don't work for companies that don't do what I do or I don't like. You know, you guys are leadership, right? Maybe the specificity of what you do, I don't do, but you do leadership, right? And I was just sitting here, for real, just thinking when we were first starting, I was just like, whoa, we got to do maybe not real lunch because of you know, what we're going through. But like, yo, I got to get on the phone with you. I got to figure out what you guys are doing in terms of leadership. Like you lead leaders. I'm like, wow, I lead leaders. You know, like this is great. When I first heard, I was like, oh, squad. Okay. I'm like, they, they lead leaders. We lead leaders. Like, I'd love to have an hour conversation or so and just talk about what are you doing? Like, what are you seeing in the industry? You know, what are the trends that you're seeing? What's working for you? What's, you know, I would love to sit down and talk. Why? Because I haven't read the last book. I haven't learned. I haven't even learned my last word yet. I'm sure my vocabulary is going to get stronger this year than it was the year before. So I think that's the more important one. I'm passionate about what I do. And if I'm not, I don't do it. And E.T., as we come to a close, this being the Game Changing Attorney podcast, what does being a game changer mean to you? Oh, man, it's about helping a group of people who don't see their greatness, see their greatness. You know, literally changing the game, meaning changing their life. You know, helping people perhaps who are afraid to overcome that fear, whether that's helping a father become a better father or a better husband or a better student or a better human. It's about doing things that are impactful, things that move the needle, not just status quo. It's about being better today than even you were yesterday. It's about challenging yourself. It's about being in challenging environments. It's not being around yes men. It's not being around people who won't challenge you, like you're afraid of accountability. It's really about doing what you do and doing it in a meaningful way and doing things that are meaningful that literally change people's perspectives, their lives, that change their experience here on earth. Like we don't get to do this for a long time. I was reading something the other day. It's like, is that true? People are living that long? Like unbelievable. Well, they're not now. Okay. So you're lucky, especially with the COVID situation, you're lucky to hit 50. Like I remember when I thought 50 was like ancient, I mean, um, young, I thought a hundred was old. 50 now is the new hundred. It seems like, you know what I'm saying? With some of the stuff that's going on, young people are committing suicide and, so for me, it's doing something meaningful, making meaning, you know, and really changing people's lives from whatever you are, whatever your platform, you know, is. To me, that's a game changer. I hope you enjoyed revisiting this episode of the Game Changing Attorney Podcast with our guest, Eric Thomas, and have gained new insights from our timeless conversation. If you found this episode valuable, here are three free ways that I can help you grow your law firm. Number one, download the first chapter of my book absolutely free at GameChangingAttorney.com. Number two, you can shoot me a text at 404-531-7691 and I'll answer any question that you've got for me. And finally, number three, if you can leave this podcast a five-star review, it'll help us gain access to more influential thought leaders and bring their lessons learned here to you. For more information on our interview with Eric Thomas, see the show notes for this episode in your podcast app or visit legalpodcast.com. Oh, 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 oh,